0: Hello there, this is Lisa Borders and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Welcome, everybody. I'm here with Xander Lurie, the CEO of SurveyMonkey, a friend and someone I met through Operation Hope when we were both focused on financial literacy. And that was a specific point in time, but we're always focused on this. But he and I share lots of philosophy and lots of things that we like to do for people. I want to have a great conversation today. Xander, so great to be with you.
1: Lisa, we always have a great conversation and thank you for having me and thanks for the warm introduction.
0: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Let me just start with how you and your family are. We're all in this thing called a pandemic and it's a global thing. How you feeling these days? How's the family?
1: The family's doing well. Thank you. Everybody's healthy and strong. We're I think we anniversary the the one year but our kids are mostly in school and uh, we're making it work and we're feeling super, super grateful for to have jobs that you can continue to thrive in a work from home environment. And, um, Grateful that we're just very fortunate and also really eager to get back out and see friends (laughs) see you and go to games and dinners and travel and get on a plane, but we have to wait. We
0: do. And listen, before we talk about work and all the things going on in the world, let's talk about family because we know that family is what shapes all of us and the experiences that we have gone through. You and I share love of my home city because you went to school here for law school and MBA school. That whole due degree thing is really cool, Xander. But let's go all the way back to growing up and going to the University of Washington. How did you make that decision about where to go to college and what to study?
1: Yeah, I think life throws you a whole bunch of curveballs and then it takes you through new doors and that presents new opportunities. Uh, I grew up in Reno, Nevada. I went to public high school, uh, Reno High School. I applied to college all over the country, and then my dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma when I was a senior in high school, and I was deciding between University of Michigan and UC San Diego, but my dad ended up going up to Seattle to get a bone marrow transplant right before I was about to start college, and my brother and I needed to go and give blood platelets as his body was working through all the chemo stuff, so we were up there Given playlists, we would switch on and off every other day. And in the end, I needed to stay in Seattle longer to support my dad. And I was super fortunate to meet some folks who helped get me an opportunity to interview at the University of Washington. And all those college prep plans and interviews and applications went out the window. And I started at UW in the fall of 91. And we won the national championship in football that year. So it was really fun freshman year. (laughs) uh, You think it's because you
0: showed up there, Xander? You think that was part of it?
1: I don't think I had any impact on that football team. I do remember (laughs) going to those games and cheering my butt off every Saturday. That was fun.
0: Oh, I hear you loud and clear. So talk about your dad and that situation. Did you have any understanding? You're like 18 years old, 19 years old. Did you understand the impact of what was going on with him and how you and your brother, and of course your mom too, everybody was engaged to support him. What did that do for the family? How were you feeling then?
1: yeah it was a very serious diagnosis and we knew he wouldn't be alive very long and it definitely did bond the family all the stuff we used to fight about or argue about you put it in perspective our family got a lot closer in those very challenging times and you see your dad on the precipice of life and I feel like we had a we had an impact of course supporting him emotionally but also just our blood physically it was a rewarding experience and yeah I miss him often that was he died almost 25 years ago.
0: Wow. It, the pain's still there. I know. Yeah. Mom, I lost my mom two years ago and we miss them. Sometimes I feel like I want to just pick up the phone and and call her. But you were at one research institution. You came all the way across country to another research institution, but you didn't come for medical stuff. You came for law school and business school. Like, What possessed you? I'm thrilled that you did it, by the way, but what possessed you to come all the way over here to Emory to become an emeroid
1: And (laughs) I had never been to Atlanta uh, before getting accepted into Emory Law School. And it it was a well-ranked law school. I didn't have a strong conviction of why I was going to law school. I think I watched um, A Few Good Men and L.A. Law and too many (laughs) constitutional rights and To Kill a Mockingbird stuff. And uh, it was actually a really fun time, as you'll remember, in Atlanta. Coca-Cola was the strongest company in America, and the Olympics were coming to Atlanta. I really enjoyed spending time in a different quadrant of the of the country, and just the whole diversity and complexity of a, a big city like that, where I, I grew up in a, in a small town. I really enjoyed my time there. I went from the law school to the business school, as you mentioned, halfway through my civil procedure class, my, my first year of law school, I was thinking, you know what? I might start looking for another degree, and I was pretty hoping whether it was... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) business or nursing or theology, I pretty quickly got uh, smart about um, not so sure I'm cut out to be a lawyer.
0: No, I hear you. But Emory has so many options and you chose the Gazueta Business School. Did you have a good experience there? I know you did well in real estate law, but you always talk about you didn't have a good time in civil procedure, but- All that law school training that you did have, does it help you today along with your business degree?
1: Oh, for sure. I think you meet great people who challenge you and you read a lot and you learn how to write better and argue better. And you learn took some business classes and M&A classes. I went from law school to business school to being an investment banker. And I think you're just laying a foundation and building a knowledge base and network that helps you grow in your career. And Eventually, wherever you land, all the stuff you did before helped you get there. So I hope, I, I never want to look back at experience or opportunity or education part of my life and say it didn't have a role. Everything played a, a role in where I am today. And I think my time at Emory was pretty pretty informative.
0: That was a fascinating time for the city. As you mentioned, the Olympics were coming for 96. The city was booming and growing in preparation for that. There's a long history in Atlanta, of course, but... Tell me about your interest in business school. I know you're a survey data guy now. The name of your company is survey Monkey, but this is not where you started. This is where you are today and what you do. Your whole notion around technology and innovation, was that born at Emory or was it always in your head and manifested itself at Emory?
1: It's a great question. If there are any young people listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to believe me when I say in all likelihood, the job you have 20 years from now, that industry may not even be invented yet. The companies probably haven't been founded yet. Like you can't even imagine what it was to be in SaaS-based enterprise software when I was in in grad school. Amazon hadn't even started AWS until 2006. So for me, the period from 1994 to 1999 was such a fun time to be Either in the technology sector or investment banking, or to just be somebody who was learning and growing. If you'll remember the World Wide Web and the Yahoo Directory and the launch of Netscape's browser, the Amazon e-commerce stores, and that was a it was a fascinating time. So, some of my good friends, Jim Lanzones, one of my best friends, now the CEO of Tinder, he founded an internet company when we were in grad school together, and I was I was a small investor and lost all my money. but it was a really fun time to just see what innovation meant and see these new products come to life. And so I got really juiced up about all things internet sector. And then when I went into investment banking, I immediately went into that area where I was helping internet companies raise capital and do M&A. And that really launched the career I'm on today.
0: Yeah. So let's come forward to where you are today and talk a little bit about how you got the seat because you've told me this story, but I want to share it more broadly about your full on engagement at SurveyMonkey. And obviously, today you're the CEO and it's rocking. The company is doing incredibly well. But how did that all come to be?
1: One of my closest friends in the world named Dave Goldberg was an internet entrepreneur. He founded a company called Launch Music that he sold to Yahoo and ran Yahoo. He and I got to be friends in 2000 and became very close friends by 2009. And he and my friends at Spectrum Equity and Bain Capital Ventures bought a company called SurveyMonkey that had 12 employees, $25 million of revenue, was based in Portland and was really building this survey platform that was the genesis of what it is today. And Dave, who I would have followed to the end of the earth, asked me to join the board of directors, which I did. I wasn't all that excited about SurveyMonkey, the company. I didn't have any background or interest in the survey space. But I love Dave, and I was inspired by him, and he was a mentor. And it was really fun to sit shotgun and watch him grow this business. Dave really expanded SurveyMonkey to become an international platform, hired some incredible people, scaled the business, revenue grew rapidly and then he died tragically and suddenly on may 1st 2015 he had a heart attack when we were on vacation together the board got together two days later in the office we addressed the whole company that monday morning and then the board members asked me to serve as interim executive director i had been working full-time at gopro running the entertainment division so i just tried to help stabilize the senior management team who was obviously grieving while keeping the business afloat and approving budgets and leading the CEO search. So we hired another CEO, a really talented fella out of HP. And for reasons that don't much matter, it didn't stick. So he left shortly thereafter. And then the board asked me to take on the, the job full time in January of 16, which I did.
0: Wow. Okay. So that speaks not only to relationship equity, but belief in concept and building that concept out and sticking with it. And now you're in the leadership chair and are you having fun? I really am.
1: Today happens to be employee appreciation day. I just tweeted out to my 1400 colleagues, just how proud I am of them and how much I appreciate them. It takes a year, like the last one we just had to really appreciate the difference maker in business or any organization education, nonprofit, you name it, is the people, obviously. It's now truer than ever. It's not the patent portfolio your company has. It's not the supply chain or exclusive contracts. All of that is can be shifted around and can change over time. It's the quality of the human capital you have, which that's the magic. Those are the folks that build your products, market your products, sell your products, take care of your customers, build your culture, and I'm very humbled to be in this chair. I feel like I am a servant to all the people who are trying to do the best work of their lives and serve our customers. And it's been a really challenging last 12 months, but it's fun and inspiring. And we do feel like we are trying to do some hard stuff and execution, human, the human effort is what makes it rewarding when you do something really well.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. But Xander, this has always or not always been the thought of corporate America. It hasn't been that the people are the epicenter of everything. It has often been operational efficiency and how can we do this more effectively? Walk with me or help me understand a little bit how you recognized, even in advance of the pandemic, because I know there's a lot of stuff you guys have been doing around diversity, a lot of stuff around being a people-centric business. you got clients all over the country and all over the globe. So talk about maybe how you came to the conclusion that the people matter most. It's not that the other things don't matter, but if you don't get the people right, the company ain't going to be right and the clients won't be served. Talk about your mental shift, if as it were, where you decided, okay, the people are the core.
1: I do think if you go back and look at history or watch Barbarians at the Gate or read you know, the books by Milton Friedman, there was this undue loyalty and devotion to serve the shareholder, the almighty shareholder, who's, who the returns to the shareholder are the only thing that matters, and that's what winners do. And the shareholders matter. For sure. Fact, the board is a fiduciary to shareholders. But there are two complexities there one is especially in the environment we're in today especially in tech and software and products that are delivered over the internet where the customer has so many choices and she's only one click away from going to a very able-bodied competitor your shareholder is not going to win if your employees are not inspired mission-driven believe in the culture and values of the company there to support each other And they're to support their customers. There's a whole lot of data. We don't need to discuss the merits of the data, which is employees that are happy and believe in their leadership team and believe in the values of their company work harder for their customers. And if you work harder for your customers and your customers are paying you and your customers retain, your shareholder is going to win. So I just think it's an orientation where we've shifted from almighty shareholder to multiple stakeholders, which start with employees, start with customers, your community, how you, how you, the role you play in your community matters. And if you do those well, you are serving your shareholder too. If you don't serve your shareholder, you will not stay in the CEO chair for sure. <laughs> but I don't think it can come at the cost of slighting your employees or hurting your customers. So I just think we're in a world today where you've got to serve your stakeholders and employees are more important now than they ever were. And it's a hyper-competitive market for human capital talent. It's even more competitive now in a COVID world because we're hiring, you know, we've hired several hundred people over Zoom. And we're hiring people in locations where we've never had offices because we recognize their talents are more important than their proximity to an office we have.
0: Yeah, this is certainly an enlightened perspective because you're a young CEO when I think about- I'm not that young
1: anymore, I'm (laughs) getting
0: older. But when I think about the legacy companies I've worked for, even some young companies- the notion of the shareholder being not just the central person, but the only person to whom someone should be working as a fiduciary was really the collective thought, not necessarily the collective wisdom. So the notion of moving from that perspective to the newer perspective is helpful. Let's talk about governing a company because you have some statistics at SurveyMonkey that I have not seen many other places. Talk about your board and how it's composed and why the composition is as it is today and how much success you feel you are or aren't having.
1: Well, a board of directors is the the, the governing body that has multiple responsibilities, starting with, especially for a public company, you've got reporting requirements, you've got governance requirements for nomination and governance and audit committee and compensation committee. And those SCC documents are, they are high stakes documents and people can incur big fines or go to jail. So you obviously take very seriously the integrity and analytical capabilities and the cultural importance of your board of directors. And so for me, if you go to any website, go to the about us page, everybody puts their board members' names and faces on the webpage. And I wanted to make sure that I had a board that our team was gonna be proud of, our customers would be proud of, our shareholders would be proud of. And I think we've been very successful at recruiting and retaining members who bring specific expertise to help me and the leadership team grow, to help us think through challenging problems, whether it's around your balance sheet or strategy or product launches, marketing, et cetera. But I was also very concerned with making sure that our board looked like the kind of group that our employee base could say, our CEO really cares about the representation on our board. And so today we have five very talented women and five very talented men. We have two black women on our board of directors. We have board members from education, from business, from different functions, whether it's CEO or CFO, marketing or sales, product, and uh, it works really well. We come together four times a year and have robust meetings that are very well prepped, and the team does a lot of good work to deliver. I obviously have a lot of interim communication, whether it's phone calls, text messages, strategy sessions with board members, and it, it's a very high-functioning and healthy relationship, and one that I think you know every CEO should care about when he or she constructs their board and then thinks about the cadence of those meetings and communication.
0: It sounds to me like you've got a high degree of diversity on the board, whether they are physical attributes or intellectual capabilities, which is amazing that the number is 50% because Xander, I'm not just blowing sunshine up your pant leg here. I don't see that number, the big five, oh, very many places, but this whole notion of diversity is a very hot topic as well, whether you're talking about the boardroom or whether you're talking about your employees. And I know this has been a real topic of interest and commitment for you personally. Tell me why that is. I can see the manifestation come to life in your boardroom and the way you govern your company, but tell me why it's so important to you.
1: First off, it's important to me, one, because diverse boards are better boards. They help the management team govern better, hire better, execute better. There's a whole bunch of data that suggests if you have boards that are diverse and management teams that are diverse, you're going to serve better. If you have a team of all white men, they're not going to do a great job. It's, Kevin Plank, the founder of Under Armour, tells a funny story about his you know, all-male management team when 20 years ago they wanted to get into women's apparel. And they, I think their first product was like a sports bra. And he just kind of <laughs> how the hell did we think we were going to do a good job? And so I don't need to spend five minutes thinking about could we construct a, an all-male senior management team and think that we can serve our 800-plus thousand paying customers and 20 million users. I know we can't. It's a terrible idea, and it would be awful for our culture. And I think the same for the board. Like how could a board that is not diverse think through the myriad strategic and challenging you know, issues we face every day and every year? So for me, it's you just have a better team and a better chance of winning in a competitive marketplace if you have a diverse board. And then secondly, from a CEO's perspective, if your team is looking at your About Us page and looking at the board and they don't see a diverse board, what is the message you're sending about your chance of getting to the top of the, the organization, whether it's a VP or C-suite or on the board of directors, a of company, if the CEO doesn't care enough? to populate that room with a diverse group, you're sending a really mixed message about what your path to growth is and what opportunities you have, especially women and people of color, as you think through my career path at your company. And lastly, it's the easiest thing to do to build a diverse group at, at the board level. It's one thing when you need to hire 500 engineers. If you look at Instacart or Uber, or some of these companies that literally hired hundreds of thousands of people last year, building diversity at those cohort numbers in engineering and data science. Now we're talking about population where they have certain requirements and the recruiting is fierce and Facebook and Google are recruiting in those worlds too. So the numbers get, just get very challenging. But if you if you can't build a diverse board of directors, you don't have a very good network. You actually need to work on your own network so you can get access to the thousands of people who could be terrific candidates for your board.
0: It's fascinating. You're talking about networks because we're creatures of habit. We like our comfort zones as humans. So you are really pushing beyond the boundaries and I'm delighted and I applaud it that I'm in your sphere and you're in my sphere because we are unique, but we are the same in so many ways. And when I think about the year that just passed, particularly the summer of 2020 and all the civic and social unrest, because people really don't seem to understand one another, and we consistently like talk past one another. It's refreshing to hear people are willing to stop and think about how something not only looks, but how it would operate and deliver better. So let's talk about that, because you and I had the opportunity to talk during Black History Month, and I remember when you first reached out to me and said, will you help me? I want you to talk with me and my SurveyMonkey colleagues about Black History Month. And I said, Xander, I'm not a big fan. I believe in Black history, but it is not Black history. It is American history. And we had a great conversation about that. Tell me how that made you feel when your Black friend said, I'm not a Black History fan. Well a Black History Month fan.
1: Yeah, first, I appreciated you giving it to me straight, and you educated me about the importance of it not being Black History Month, it being Black History Always, and frankly, you inspired us to design a really cool mural that we celebrated all month and got a lot of love on social for how we crossed out month and put Always, and so you really were the genesis of that, and I appreciate that. Last year really was the year where I just had a lot more dialogue with my Black friends and Black colleagues about really challenging issues that, frankly, we didn't talk about in 2019 because if I'm really honest, it just wasn't natural to have a lunch with six black colleagues and ask about times they had faced discrimination or microaggressions or what it was like to be in the workplace where they were the only. Those just weren't conversations we were having. We were. It wasn't that we weren't talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We just weren't getting that pointed and prescriptive about the challenges. And I think it the George Floyd murder and other names that were so in the front of the news in May and June, it really brought those issues to the fore. And it was a very, it was a very challenging year for everybody, especially our black and Brown community. But I really felt it too. I I felt raw emotion about what I hadn't done enough of and felt I'd seen it. I was in a position of leadership position of power. I have responsibility. I recognize my white privilege and I should have done more and now I'm doing it. I'm, putting more effort in and trying to get smarter about the role I play and the role we play as a company. And I'm proud of the results. But it's, as you said, it's a marathon. There's, we're not going to solve any of this in a quarter or a year. And it's we will be judged by the sustainability. I think
0: that's right. But the step one the very first step i think is what you and i have done is spending time with one another getting to know one another and having a safe space to have an honest conversation xander because i can't remember i was trying to think of the last three four five places i've worked i don't remember having these conversations with folks it just wasn't done to your point and people weren't comfortable how has the culture improved even more at SurveyMonkey. Has it helped that you all are creating this time and space and place to have conversations that were perhaps off limit, off limits or were a third rail previously, and now we're in a better place to to talk about stuff together?
1: I can't speak for all my colleagues. I can share some of my observations. And I think they do run the spectrum from people feeling... Yeah, we're being a lot more honest and we're having more conversations and we've hired the justice collective to do trainings and we've made a lot more efforts in recruiting whether it's standing up a a team that is you know focused on on recruiting in diverse communities we have some jobs where we only do you know or interviewing diverse candidates for a certain period of time we've put in incremental bonuses and rewards for referrals so we're seeing results in recruiting. We're having more open spaces and conversations, more education. But it's also just bringing more issues to the fore that we hadn't addressed in the past. And we're talking a lot about pay equity and promotion criteria and how senior management is judged based on their contributions in this arena. So I think people are proud of the effort we're putting in, but I don't want to Take any victory laps like we ain't done. We're not perfect. <laughs> and I'm not perfect, and I get reminded of that often. So it, it feels like we are on the path to progress, but I don't think it's a straight line.
0: Well said I think you're absolutely right, and SurveyMonkey is a great company, but it is one company, and I wish I could say. I could name five more doing some of the things that you guys are already doing. And it seems to me that you've had some enlightening experiences just on this particular journey, not to mention the corporate journey that you've had. But is there a particular time that stands out in your mind above all others where perhaps you had one perspective and you went through whatever experience and came through on the other side with an evolved or different perspective than what you had initially?
1: I think if you look at the words, diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have been focused on the diversity component for a while. And we talked about the board, we talked about senior management, the importance of having diversity at all levels of the organization. And everybody does this. Everybody reports their statistics out. I'm proud of the work we did around. We put out a a report each year about our one and five-year goals and talk about how we're tracking. The inclusions piece is more difficult to manage. And if you spend a bunch of time and resources and you're recruiting black and Latina members in each of your different functions in your offices, and you're not providing for an inclusive environment and your white managers don't understand the issues that might be endemic to a particular community, and you have leakage and you have people leaving because they're not happy with the workplace that you've created, you just have a lot of thrash and that's a real externality of not doing it well. So I think over the last year we are getting much more focused on, yes, we are going to be recruiting more aggressively and we want to be proud of our diversity statistics, but let's not stop there. We also need to make sure this is really an inclusive place for everybody to do their best work. And I'll I'll mention just a woman in, on, on our CX team our customer experience team, she called me directly last May after George Floyd was killed. And we had a, a town hall. We have a town hall every two weeks, 9, 9 a.m. Pacific. And it's 30 minutes on Zoom. And a lot of questions. And I didn't mention it. It was the day after the George Floyd murder was so prolific in the news. And I, I hadn't done enough prep work. Shame on me. I, had, <clears throat> I wasn't, maybe it wasn't my best day. I wasn't ready for it. But she called me and just really expressed her disappointment in me that I hadn't brought up the issue that was causing so much pain and acute stress in our community and not just our black and brown community, everybody, a lot of white people were really distressed about it, but especially our black and brown colleagues who had just felt like, how are you not focused on this? And it, that was a pretty good high heater she threw at me. And I appreciated, it. <laughs> I appreciate her giving me the feedback and, It's those kind of moments where people internally hold you accountable to be better and be smarter about the things that really matter. And when you're smarter about that, she cares more about the company. She's going to work harder for customers. And she sees that we are addressing the issues that are causing acute stress. So that was one moment in a series of moments last year.
0: Listen, I got to tell you, I'm sure you are grateful for the feedback But what I have to observe is that your attitude, not only about the feedback, but what you could do at that moment and continue to do on this continuum, on this journey, is noteworthy. So the gratitude is one thing. The attitude is a bigger piece of this, the mentality, which hopefully will translate into even greater altitude, for Survey Monkey. So you have been tremendous and I am so grateful for this opportunity to spend some time with you, Xander. You are my man and I'm truly appreciative of the time and the insights. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Lisa. And building this friendship with you, especially over the last year, has been rewarding personally, but also educational and your experience at the highest level in business at Coke and the NBA and Duke, you bring a lot of different perspectives and insights, and you've made me smarter and hopefully a little bit better. And if I can transcend that through SurveyMonkey and help in tech, we're doing a lot of things that are going to make an impact, but it's going to take a lot of time and effort. I appreciate you. And thanks for having me on today.
0: Absolutely. Will you come back and talk some more? Say the word. You got it, my friend. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us.